0: So he pick it up. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, "Get me this young woman as a wife." And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah's daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with them. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and when they heard it, the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriage with us. Give us your daughters to us. And take our daughters to yourselves, so you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it. Acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brother, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. Thus, these first 12 verses introduce us to a very unpleasant story and a difficult situation that who can even wrap their mind around it, really. But it's life, right? I mean, this happens in people's lives. There's a, a rape. There's deception. There's things that ought not to happen. It's just difficult stuff and unpleasant. But there's a lot of that every day in the human experience. So Jacob's in the land. He's navigated all that other stuff. He's got the boys are taking care of the assets, the estate, the home, all that they have. They're there. And his daughter goes into the community, and she's violated by this man, Shechem, who's a prince. So he's an important guy. I can't help but wonder what Jacob thought, because Jacob worked seven years, and it seemed like nothing to him, to be able to marry Rachel. He worked seven years to show his love before having intimacy with Rachel. And then he got tricked by his dad, his father-in-law, excuse me, his father-in-law, and then he worked another seven years before he got to be with the woman he loved intimately. And he just wondered what he thought when this guy with a different standard of a different culture, different community, takes his daughter and takes from her her wedding night, the, all these different things that he took from her. Now, we don't know anything about her perspective. We never get an insight like, oh, she loved him, she liked him. We don't get anything like that. It's just silent. We just know that she was in the community... And this man saw her, he took her, he violated her, and then he wanted to keep her. Now, we are told that he treated her kindly and nice. We're told that we read that in the text. But it's all just wrong. It's not God's standard. It's not the way God has set it up. And these are not people of covenant. These are Hivites. And in case you don't know your history, are going to be destroyed by God. They're going to be eradicated from the face of the earth as a people group in about 400 years. They're so evil that God pronounces that they're so evil that they are beyond redemption as a people group. Think about that for a minute. So this is a prelude and an indicator of what kind of people God judged under the hand of Joshua when he comes into the promised land 400 plus years later and he's told to wipe them all out. These people were never going to be God-fearing people. They're never going to be God-honoring people, which isn't a prerequisite for being alive on this planet, of course. But as God's planet and he can do what he wants to do. And how unsearchable are his ways and his judgments past finding? These aren't evil people. They're idolaters. They have different standards. Well, and certainly they're takers. You just take what you want. And they took Dinah. He took Dinah. He violated her. And he wants to have her as his wife. Like, who's going to deny the prince? The prince gets whatever he wants. And he goes to his dad and says, Dad, go talk to these people. Work this out. I want this woman. And whatever it takes, get me this woman. And in fact, he himself said, but give me the young woman as a wife. Well, he kind of already took her. But he's saying, give me. It's a disgraceful thing. The brothers are very upset. It's a disgraceful thing. Jacob held his peace till the brothers were there. Jacob's probably thinking it through. Okay, what do we do? How do we approach this? But we'll see as the chapter progresses, there's always more at work than what we think is at work in our lives and the things going on around us. Verse 13, we read on. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And the words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all of his household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city, spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them that they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city, he Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Again, their hearts are revealed because the people of Shechem, the city, because they say, hey, look, we'll do this. It's one simple thing. Now, it's, it's crazy because you think how special God's people were. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, the sign of distinction for the Israelites from the surrounding people. It was a sign of the covenant, the cutting away of the flesh as you come forward in the New Testament, obviously in books like Galatians and Romans where it goes into great detail what that represented. And here, these sons of Jacob, they're using this element that is a distinction of, for them from the surrounding people. It says, hey, you can join us and you'll do this and do that. Now, the value of circumcision for the Jews and the symbolism meant everything. They're the people of covenant. It's the value of everything. All the promises are yes and yes and amen. And circumcision, Genesis 17, is a sign of that covenant. For these Shechemites, that mean anything. Like whatever. Yeah, this is what we need to do to get their women and whatever and get their wealth yeah, it's simple enough. See, the Bible talks about those who consider holy things not holy, and they trample them under a foot like the Son of God. And it's important that holy things are holy. Circumcision is very, very holy in the Old Testament. It's holy as a water baptism in the New Testament. It's important that we make distinctions between holy and unholy. What fellowship has the cup of the Lord with the cup of Bel? 2 Corinthians ask us. There is distinctions. And circumcision was a distinction for the Jews that they're a holy people. They're going to be told 400 years after this at Mount Sinai, you're a holy people, you're set apart, you're a special treasure to me, you're a holy nation, you're priest of me. You see in ministry where people will confess Christ to be able to marry someone they want to marry. You ever seen that? Oh, I'm a believer. It happens. You see in ministry, people like will say like, uh, yeah, I'll get baptized in your church. Sometimes certain denominations would require that. Like if you're going to marry outside the denomination, they'll require that the person you marry adhere to your denomination. You might be baptized into that denomination. That's kind of what that's like. It's just, yeah, well, whatever it takes to get the girl or to get the guy. Sure, I'll become a Mormon if if I can marry this girl. Sure, I'll become a Jehovah's Witness if I can marry this guy, whatever. Or sure, I'll become Catholic if I can do this. I'll become Protestant if I can do that. The list is endless. What's holy is holy. And what's distinct is distinct. And we should never let that get muddled in our minds, the difference between light and darkness. The world loves ambiguity and the gray zone. With God, there's light and darkness and a new day. There's light and darkness physically, and there's light and darkness spiritually, John chapter 1. There's something very blasphemous to me about the Shechemites saying, sure, we'll be circumcised. Yeah, look, all that wealth, it'll be ours. It'll be ours. So they reveal their hearts. like So they're going to absorb the Jewish people, and they're going to make them Shechemites. It's not that the Shechemites are going to be absorbed by the Israelites and become Israelites. And that's what happens with compromise, Right? not of this world. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. It's tricky too, isn't it? I mean, it is very tricky to be in this world and not of this world. But there are certain covenants or agreements or partnerships where we think that we might elevate someone to faith, but in fact, they're going to dilute us and absorb us in unbelief. That's why Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthians, Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. we got to keep what's holy, it's holy. And even if we want other people to identify with their holiness, we can't do it at the expense of them compromising and not understanding what that distinction is of faith and holiness. Or we might just say, we don't want people just coming forward at an event because we want people coming forward. We want people responding to a gospel invitation or a gospel message because they're under the conviction and the work of the Holy Spirit. We want people to be transformed. There's no transformation here. They're like, yeah, okay, yeah, well, look, it's all going to be ours. Hey, if we become Christians, we'll do this. I mean, that's kind of like Constantine conquering, you know, in the Roman Empire out into Germany and France and these regions as they went out in the name of the cross. They converted all those pagan people into Christianity, and, and the, Christ- the Christianity was diluted by the pagan people. They didn't elevate the pagan people, and that's how you get state religions and things like that. The church is light and darkness, and we're distinct and we're separate. Circumcision is holy stuff in the Old Testament. And who knows what the brothers were thinking. They just want to get even and set this straight. But a Hivite's a Hivite. And you can circumcise a Hivite. He's still a Hivite. She's still a Hivite. If they're not born again, they're not born again. Just because someone goes to church doesn't mean they're saved. Just because someone's been water baptized this way or that way doesn't mean they're saved. God knows, and we know if anyone's in Christ or a new creation, all things have passed away, all things are new. It's not about taking. It's about receiving and serving. Amen? Amen. So that's where it's at, and we read on. Verse 25, Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, full brothers, same mom, same dad, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son with the edge of the sword, took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their ox, their donkeys, what was in the city, what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? What a chapter. This is not your typical chapter in the Bible, although the Bible does without shame reveal everything in the human experience brutally honest in the human experience but there's not too many chapters like Genesis 34 should he treat our sister like a harlot that's a great question you don't get an answer right no one answers the question well of course not but this and that everything else they just put the question out there and it just moves on to God intervenes and he speaks in the next chapter which we taught Saturday and we're coming to in just a moment so the brothers, they go out there and they wipe everybody out. Most likely the other brothers were involved as well, but these are the full brothers. Dinah was their full sister. Same mom, same, same dad. Because remember like the way the sequence works with four women, obviously some are half brothers, but she's a full sister to these two. And they go out and they plunder the city. They do exactly to the Shechemites what the Shechemites said they were going to do to the Jews. Did you catch that? Everything of theirs will be ours. And they plundered them, and they did exactly to them what the Shechemites are plotting to do to them in a different manner. It's sort of like in the book of Esther where Haman's plotting all the things where all the people are excited throughout the provinces they're going to wipe out the Jews, the the decrees go forth we can wipe them out, take everything from them well once Esther risks her life and the king flips the switch and it all goes back in order and Haman hangs on the new seat built for Mordecai then the new decree goes out and what do the Jews do? They go out and slap the people that are going to slap them the people that were plotting to take everything from them, the Jews took it from them. God catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the funny thing, peculiar about chapter 34 of Genesis, there's no real commentary on it. Sometimes you read a story like this, you go like, well, and it was bad all the way around, and God dealt with the boys, and he dealt with... You don't read anything. You just It's like the news. It's like an article in the paper or online, and you read it, and you're like, wow. And you might even have the comments, like people blog, right? They all everyone has a comment on a news story if they can put it there. Blah, 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 blah. Chirp, 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 this, then, and everything. And what about the Hivites? It's so unfair. It's cruel. what about the Jews? You know, and the circumcision is you know, all there. Everyone has an opinion, right? It's like certain news stories you go like, oh my goodness, what a oh, what a just a tragic story. And then like somewhere like Fox News or somewhere else, you might see all these comments. No comment from the Lord on chapter 34 this happened, she was defiled, it wasn't right, it was evil, he was as honorable as you could expect from these people, but he still violated her, he still deceived the people, the Jewish people, her brothers, he had plans of deception for them, but they outsmarted him, deceiving him, and you know, the Lord catches the wise in their own craftiness, and in the end, these Hivites, they're gone, they're all dead, their kids, their wives, they now belong to Israel, exactly what they're going to do to Israel in a different way, all their wealth that they're going to take now belongs to Israel, And then the last thing you have is, should they treat our sister like a harlot? So let me just say this. Don't mess with God's people. Don't mess with God's people. First of all, don't ever mess with the Jews. Just make that really clear. Look at Germany. Have they ever recovered? They're conquering the world for centuries. Prussians, Germans, like, what are they doing? I mean, don't mess with God's people. If people want to mess with you because you're God's people, that's between them and the Lord and you and the Lord. But you don't ever want to put yourself on the side where you're perpetrating evil and injustice against people that serve the living God. Now, the Jews, of course, Israelites are under a covenant with God that's incomplete and will be reestablished after the Lord comes for his church. And all the hate in the world can't keep them out of the promised land. All the hate in the world can't keep them out of Jerusalem and all the hate in the world can't keep them from being there at the Valley of Medigo when the whole world comes together trying to wipe them out at the end of this age as we know it. I told you what really hit me when I was in Russia, profoundly being in Russia, is as I looked around Russia and understood the Russian culture and continued to work on the Russian language and prepare to return in 2020, I was think, hey, you've heard me say this. I don't know where the United States is on the last day of this planet as we know it, but I know where Russia is They're in charge. Russia leads the planet to the valley of Megiddo to make war against Jesus Christ. Coming for Israel and then becomes a war against God, the God of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come with him from heaven, the church that's been caught up to be with him. We come with him in Revelation 20, but to the valley of Megiddo. But at the end of this age, as we understand it, and I don't have time to go all the Bible prophecy stuff, but if you harmonize scripture at the end of the age, Gog and Magog and all the north, and the whole world comes together against Israel and Megiddo. And it tell you, Russia is in charge of the planet on that day, leading that group. And people say, what about China? Hey, there's kings of the east, and there's a lot of them too. But Russia is the one that's leading it. That's where this planet's going. I don't need to speculate. I know where it's going. But Israel is standing there on that day. The Jews... Israelites the star of David is flying in Megiddo on the last day of time space and matter of this dispensation as we understand it in our timeline and the church will continue to thrive and prosper until the Lord calls us up to be with him in the air 1st Thessalonians 4 and 1st Corinthians 15 until he's done so you have God's people of covenant the 70th week of Daniel waiting to happen and by the way we're going to be in Daniel this year the 70th week of Daniel waiting to happen and they're there And the U.N. can make all their decrees. They can do all their stuff against Israel. And you know, those guys, Benjamin Netanyahu, he'll just put a a blown-up bus and drop it at the Hague and say, here's what happens to us. We'll do what we're going to do, which is what he did. If you never read that story, a bus blown up by terrorists in Israel. He shipped the bus to the European courts who were condemning them, dropped it on their front doorstep, and said, God promised them that land, and they're the sons of Abraham, and they're there till the end. And we're here as a church until the trumpet sounds, which is just before the end. Don't mess with God's people. People mess with us. They harass us at work. They harass us in the neighborhood. They harass us sometimes because they don't like you, but sometimes they harass you because of your faith. Think of all the people that attacked Pastor Chuck. People, People can do what they do. And in this country, you have free speech, so you can actually say a lot in many cases. Well, you can certainly attack Christians pretty openly and blatantly if you want to in this country. And in most countries around the world. But I'm telling you, don't mess with God's people. Don't put yourself in a place where God's chasing is against you because you're attacking someone that belongs to Him. That's the application. That's the application I see in Genesis 34. Because we'll see in 35 that no one comes after Jacob, all of his fears, God has our back, and obviously the context is Old Testament, and how things are working with circumcision is a sign of the covenant. The Jews, future things that happen, it's like black and white TV, but the principle is the same. Do not mess with God's anointed, his people. So when people mess with you, just keep your heart pure and right with the Lord. Give that to the Lord. Let God be your avenger. Turn the other cheek. Forgive those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Go the extra mile. Don't, don't take the bait to hate. Don't take the bait to be bitter, but just give it to the Lord and become better and let God fight your battles. And where there's been injustices, this has been a theme lately around here, let God set those things straight. And if it's the end, it's the end. Because God can protect Paul from Nero and Caesar, yet Paul's going to, be decapitated with capital punishment. We're all going to die. I mean, there's all going to be an ending. And if you feel there's an injustice right near the end when you realize this seems really unfair, embrace it with the Lord Jesus Christ and know that there's glory in it for time, space, and matter, and for all eternity. The end is the end. God has our back, and we don't ever want to be on the side where we're attacking God's people. One final thought on this. For all that I deserved chastening for in serving the Lord for 32 years, and I've deserved it for many things, I can testify from my personal opinion of God's work in my life. The worst chastenings in my life have come when I raise my voice and my hand against other people who serve the Lord. Best thing you can do is pray for God's people. I've watched people attack each other in the Calvary movement the last five years. And I say, you ought not to do that. That is not going to be a good ending. What's your opinion? People say to me, "I doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. We've been around long enough to know, like, we're not jumping in this way. But I've seen people say things against God's anointed and his people, and I just think, don't do that. That's a bad ending. Because if you know the Lord truly, he's going to crack you for that. Because he protects his people. Now we read on. Chapter 34. Jacob scared for his life. The brothers like, should he treat her like a, our sister like a harlot? It's just so heavy. And then chapter 35 reads this. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. And make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods, which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, literally God of the house of God, El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. It's all unraveling. His daughter's been defiled. His his sons have wiped out the village. He's not really a man of war. He outsmarts people. He doesn't out-beef them. And he's just, Jacob is like, oh my goodness, it's just all. Again, it's like the situation with Laban and Esau coming. And yet again, the Lord speaks to him. Verse 1 to 35 is, God breaks the silence in this difficult time, and says, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. And make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Go back to Bethel. Go back to the beginning. Now, remember, Bethel is where God first revealed himself to Jacob decades before when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. It's the place of beginnings. This was our whole study on Saturday night. Go back to the beginning. And so often God takes us back to the beginning. So often we have to go back to where it all began because we lose our way. We get, things get muddled. We get off track. The beginning is love with the Lord. We love him because he first loved us. No one seeks after the Lord, no, not one. But God has revealed himself to us. The beginning of our relationship with Christ is that God revealed himself to us by his Spirit to direct us to his Son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. There might have been all sorts of things on the journey that brought us to that. It it might have been this particular divine appointment, this thing that someone said, this, that, or anything else. But to come to a saving faith, there is a beginning. There is a beginning where there's a conscious understanding between you and the Lord, where you realize God is God and you are not. And you come to a place of comprehension that Jesus Christ is indeed who he says he is, the son of God who died on the cross for our sins, your sins, and you come to a place where you receive him. That's the beginning. That's Bethel for us. For me, it's 1987 when I read it is finished on the cross in John 19, and I realized I'm saved by grace, not by works. That was my Bethel moment. Most of you here can recall a Bethel moment, a flashpoint of your faith where you're like, you know what? I'm all in. And maybe you believed and you did this and you did that and you, you went to church or whatever. But there's that moment where it's a saving faith moment. It's the Bethel moment. And in the time of crisis, in the time of fear for life, because Jacob said, I shall be destroyed, my household not. He's not only afraid that he's going to die, but that his entire family's is going to die. But here's the tricky thing. God had already promised to him that the co- the promise of the covenant is in him. When you come to what you don't know, you fall back on what you do know. So the fear of the surrounding tribes and people of the Canaanites coming after him and his family and destroying them, that fear should never supersede that the fact that God made promises to him that in him the kings would come, including the king of kings, Jesus Christ, the genealogy through the Virgin Mary. So in his fear... He has removed the faith in the promises of God and replaced it with the fear of men, which, of course, is not that unusual. And we know the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. In this crisis moment, Jacob has lost faith in those promises that God made to him, and he's fearful. And he's so fearful he's going to lose everything. I'm going to lose the house. I'm going to lose all the wealth. I'm going to lose everything, the estate. I'm going to lose The people I love, my family, I'm going to lose it all. Everyone on this Christmas card photo there, I'm going to lose them all. And it is a moment where he is surrendered to his fears. And it's easy to do. And the Bible tells us to be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication, let our requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isaiah the prophet said, he will keep thee in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in thee. Jacob has lost his way here. But we're told in Timothy that when we're faithless, God remains faithful. And even in this faithless moment for Jacob, God remains faithful and says, Hey, arise, go back to Bethel. And when our life has been train wrecked or our life is held captive by fear, we need to always go back to Bethel and realize that love, that divine love that God has for us, that vertical relationship, because the horizontal and the human experience will terrify us and stumble us and trip us up. But to keep that perspective that Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. He's the author yeah. and fish of our faith. And We love him because he first loved us. That's Bethel for us. That's Bethel for the believer in Christ in the new covenant. It's going back and remembering that God loves us and that God has our back and he's going to take care of us and he's going to watch over us and he's going to keep us and we can trust him. Because life throws things at us that are so complicated, so messy, it's like chapter 34. Defilement, things that are not right, deception, death, murder, rape. Life throws those things at us. And you can say, yeah, I believe the gospel, but, what, but this situation is too big for God. Big God, little problem. Big problem, little God. There's always the choices. It's the perspective. And when God takes us back to Bethel, he takes us back to that place like he is God. It's like the burning bush. I am that I am, God said to Moses. It's a place where God is the all-sufficient one for everything we'll ever have. Or as we've seen, when Sarah left, is anything too hard for the Lord? God has our back. And the issue is not what's coming against us or what seems unjust to us or unfair to us. The issue is, are we able to trust in the Lord and keep our eyes on the Lord? It's like Peter walking on water. Do we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, looking to the author and finish our faith? Or are we looking at the waves and the storms and we begin to sink? Bethel is taking us back to the relationship. Jesus in the parable of the soils, he talked about not taking root. But he also talked about the thorns of life choking things out. That there's no fruit because things are choked out. And they are the cares of this life. And chapter 34 is certainly the cares and the drama of this life. And they'll choke out life. So what is the cure for that? What is the cure for just completely overwhelmed? It's an endless list of things that have to be done and none of them are pleasant. And you only want to get out of bed. God says, arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there, and make an altar. Recommit yourself. Reestablish yourself. Make Make the Lord number one again. Like Jesus said to the Ephesian church, you've left your first love. That's how it all gets set straight. I think of my sister and all that she's been through from the drugs and then being on the streets and the courts and all, no driver's license. She hasn't driven for seven years and all these things and watching her rebuild her life. But in the midst of her being sober for two and a half years and all of her recovery, it's just been, it's about her and the Lord. When my mom passed away, my sister, the only way she could cope with being in the hospital room where my mom's body was, she said, Joe, I've never seen a dead body. And well, I said, I'm sorry, it has to be mom. But we're here, and we watched our mom pass together. And the only way she could cope with it, which is the best way we could cope with it, she was throwing so much scripture down, it was incredible. The nurses are coming in, she's just like, because she, she knows the Bible extremely well. It wasn't for lack of knowing the truth, it was for lack of willing to obey it that affected her life in such a detrimental way. And then when the doctor comes in and pronounces the, the body deceased, if you've ever been in that situation, that's what happens. They come in and say, medically, this person has passed. And, and you know, we're packing stuff up. And she's just, every person she's talking to, it's just scripture, scripture, scripture. Just scripture. When we're burying our mom on Thursday in Cleveland, Scripture, 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 Scripture. That's what it comes back to, is you, the Lord, His Word, the promises, and bringing us through it. And whatever we have to face. My sister hit complete, total rock bottom. And that's a place where she is restored with the Lord. And my wife will testify, my sister is a completely different person than the one we knew when we got married 32 years ago, Jennifer and I, because Barbie's always been her sister-in-law. And many of you know Barbie, you met her last week here, you saw my mom's memorial at St. Francis two weeks ago. But Bethel for Barbie was, you don't blame anyone, you accept responsibility for all your shortcomings, you make right what's crooked, restoration, you never blame anyone. You accept responsibility for yourself. You stay focused on the day and you seek your higher power, whatever, which for her, of course, is Jesus Christ, which means it's the right higher power, the true higher power. And I watched her life be rebuilt, but she had to go back to Bethel. Sometimes we have to go all the way back to Bethel. And sometimes it's not just limited to our salvation, but really our calling, because some people walk away from their calling. Some people just know God's got something for them and that's just too much. I can't do that. I, I'm over it, it's just, the ministry's just, it's too much. I can't, the drama, the people, the, and people walk away. And sometimes Bethel's God reaffirming the calling of God on your life and what he really wants to do. Like, it's been there all along and you can't go back and be young again, if you will, or go back to high school or go back to college age or these sorts of things or go back to your 40s if you're almost 60, but there are things there. And if we've walked away from things that are part of the calling, we want to we go back to that place, rebuild the altar, and say, okay, Lord, what, what have I, what, what's redeemable here? What do you want to make of this? Like, Let's get on with it. The Bible is filled with stories of people having to rebuild things that were abandoned and seeing a fresh work think about Ezra and those guys when they came back from the captivity around 500 BC and they came back from the Babylonian captivity they had to rebuild the temple and they're just sobbing it's like it's more they're just sobbing they picture they could think of the old temple Solomon built and there's nothing there and they lay the chief cornerstone and the young people are cheering like hey we're going to have a place of worship again the old people are sobbing it's like you don't even know what we've lost and it's so insurmountable. Or, or, or then when Nehemiah comes and they clear out all, they're going to rebuild the city walls and there's so much rubbish that people are overwhelmed by the degree of rubbish, but they commit themselves to the work and they do it in, thus in 60 days. But rebuilding, rebuilding, getting back on track, restoring the place of central worship, restoring the, the, the right things with the Lord and, and getting it right. Bethel is very important, you guys. And it's a, it's a great text. I love this passage. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. I've taught it throughout my entire time in ministry. It's one of the passages I've taught at different times for guest speaking. I love the story of God saying, go back, build the altar. Just remember how it was, you and me in the beginning, and let's go forward. Because once you've rebuilt the altar of that place where Christ is the chief cornerstone of your life, then like, okay, I've got criminal charges against me. I live in a rehab house with 19 other women. I'm the oldest one here. No one trusts me. My son won't talk to me. I've broken my mom's heart. My dad doesn't want me around. This was my sister three years ago. But we got to go forward. And once you build that altar, then, then those things will be restored. Like the prophet Joel said, he'll restore the things that the locusts have eaten, even the swarming locust. But it doesn't happen until you're back at Bethel and you've rebuilt that altar. And I speak for my own life. I mean, can you imagine me in Cleveland last week? I'm back at the house that I grew up in as a young child. I'm back at the first church I remember believing in Jesus in. I'm putting my mom on the ground with her sister and her brother and her grandmother. I'm seeing downtown Cleveland, which I remember going to as a kid. I mean, God just took me back to Bethel like the very, very, very beginning of Bethel, believing in God, those Christmases. I was just there. He literally took me, your pastor, last week to Bethel where I first believed in Jesus Christ. I have never not believed that Jesus is the son of God and I have never not believed in God being the creator of the universe or my accountability to him. And I stood there at St. Anne's church. I'm like, this is my Bethel. This is where it all began. And this is where it extends. And we're not done. Not with me and not with you. We read on. Verse 8. Now we come to the clusters of death. So as we go forward from the altar being rebuilt, we get to these. the rest of this chapter. There's three deaths. And they're they're all very different, and we'll tie them together. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, not Rachel, but Rebecca. So, mom's nurse, mom for Jacob, Jacob's mom's nurse. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the Terebinth tree. So the name it was called Alon Bakush, which is Terebinth of weeping. Then God appeared to Jacob again. We came from Padam and blessed him, and God. Said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants. After you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he was talking with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone. He poured a drink offering on it. and He poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. So that's a reaffirmation of being restored at Bethel. Verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they, there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died That she called his name Ben-Ani, or son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephraim, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And literally to this day, you can see her grave mark if you go to Israel. Verse 21. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Edor. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. So that was Rachel's maidservant. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, that'd be the maidservant, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padamoram, Syria, when he was there with Laban. Verse 27, then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, and being all the full days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So beginning with verse 8 and ending with the burial, graveside burial of Isaac, we have the three deaths the first death, we're told, they called it the terebinth of weeping. There was great sorrow with Deborah's death. Obviously, she was beloved. She was the nurse. She was like a nanny to all the family. She was beloved, and it was a place of weeping. Now, the first weeping in the Bible is Abraham weeping for Sarah when she died. So there's great sorrow. There's the waves of sorrow with death of loved ones, it, it comes in waves. It comes in different Things will trigger it and make you think about it. Both my brother and sister share with me they feel like they've not yet begun to mourn for the passing of our mom. But me working on that slideshow for four nights in a row, I, I cried nonstop for hours. Death produces sorrow in Jesus' name, how much more so without Jesus. These are the people of faith dealing with death. Can you imagine? Like, it's just, I don't even, I don't know how people do it. I've done phenols for non-believers. It's just, it's so sad. And difficult, arduous. The hardest thing to do in ministry is a minister of the gospel is to do memorials for people that didn't know the Lord. It's very difficult. The tree of weeping, terebinth of weeping. Then Rachel dies suddenly in childbirth. You did not see that coming. So Deborah was probably older and like, yes, yeah, she's lived a full life. But Rachel, you did not see it coming. She died in childbirth. I mean, can you imagine the shock and the trauma of that? She died in childbirth. Like, that is so sad. And for Jacob, after all these other things, to have her die, that is just so, the woman he loved and worked seven years to marry, and actually 14, it's just so sad. Right there on the side of the road, and you're not going to transport her like he buried her on the side of the road. She didn't even make it to the cave of Machpelah. Like, it's just so sad, the, the grieving. And then his father dies. Which is different because he's rich and full of life. But there's Esau and Jacob after all those years. There's there's the two sons and there's dads going in the going in the grave. And you just you cannot get around these things. And many of you know this, but the longer you live, the more likely you'll experience the death of loved ones that you respected above you, like the nurse Deborah, people you love beside you, like your wife or your husband or even your children. You'll experience the passing of your parents that you love, and even though they're rich and full of life, you still grieve and mourn because they're not going to be there. Uncle Bob, my dad's brother, when I told him my mom died, he started weeping because he says all he wants to do is call his mom. His mom died on January seventh, 2000. She died right after Y2K. I was the first one who walked in the room after she passed. And he said, just, just me saying that my mom had passed made him sob, sob, Convulsively thinking about that, he's wanted to call his mom for 20 years and he's not able to. And Esther was in her 90s. His mom was in her 90s. So, the only way we get around all this is not forgetting who we serve. We serve God Almighty. Else you die. God Almighty. Because in the midst of all this death, God reaffirms who He is to Jacob I am God Almighty. He's the God who made the universe. In six days, literally. He speaks it, and there it is. He makes things out of nothing. We recreate. He makes things out of nothing. I am God Almighty. He's the one who made the whole universe revolve around this planet, where He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins and redeem this entire universe affected by the death from our sins that Adam brought into the world. He is God Almighty. He is God Almighty when your daughter's raped. He's God Almighty when your brothers, when your sons kill the guys that avenge them. He's God Almighty when you're fearing for your life and God's got your back. The terror of the Lord was over Jacob as he passed through the land. He is God Almighty to see his promises through and he's always doing more than we think he's ever doing. He is doing way more than we think he's doing. He's God Almighty when he calls us back to Bethel to make things straight and rebuild that altar and get the reboot and the reload and go forward to fulfill what's left of our time and journey in this life. He's God Almighty when Deborah dies, and you can name a tree for weeping. The same tree you buried all your idols under, He's God Almighty. You buried your idols under a terebinth tree, He's God Almighty. Get rid of them. You bury her by a terebinth tree, and He's God Almighty because it's a tree of weeping. It's a tree of repentance, that terebinth tree at the beginning of the chapter, and then it's a tree of weeping when you're burying Deborah. He's God Almighty when your wife dies in child labor, and all the blood and everything that was there. It was It's horrible. It's horrible, but He's God Almighty. You're not alone in that room. When that baby's being delivered, and it goes like that. He's God Almighty. Nothing comes into our life that has not passed through His hands. We're the people of covenant, and He's got us in every experience of the human experience. But the difference between us and the lost being born again and having faith in Jesus Christ is it is all redeemed for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purposes. He's God Almighty in His universe, but for His people, He's our Abba Father, and He's God Almighty. And in these two chapters was so much messy human stuff. So they treat her like a harlot, the end of chapter 34. Chapter 35, there's Esau and Jacob, full-grown men, looking at each other like, dude, Pop's gone. He's God Almighty. He's God Almighty. We shall not be moved. Jesus, our chief cornerstone, He's God Almighty. Amen.